So let's do this. Let's, let's read Matthew 1, 18 to 25. But what we're really going to focus on in this section is verses 21, 22, and 23. But let's get the, the whole paragraph so we have more of a context to work with. Okay, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. <clears throat> now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Lord, give life and uh, inspiration from this well-known old, old story, this inspired story from your record, your, your book. I, I pray that it would be of help to us to prepare our hearts to truly worship Jesus Christ for his incarnation. So we look to you now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled this message, She Will Bear a Son. It's the opening words of verse 21, she will bear a son. And it's also contained in verse 23. The virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And in the heart of every Jewish girl, before the coming of Jesus, there was this, this dream, this hope that perhaps they might be the one through whom the Messiah would come into the world. Because for hundreds of years, God had been promising that he was going to send his people a deliverer a Messiah, a Savior. Now the Jews by and large had misunderstood the promises. They thought that the deliverer was going to be a military deliverer, a military conqueror. And so the, the Jewish people that were living during the time of Mary and Joseph, they, the Jewish people by and large believed that this military conqueror who came into the world would destroy the Romans who had subjugated the Jewish people. And then the Jews would then be their free um, the free government again, and they would be able to rule and govern themselves. They would have their own king in the line of David. So they had misunderstood that. God's plan was not to send the Jews a Messiah who would deliver them from earthly enemies, but a savior to deliver them from their sins and their sins' eternal consequences. Now, in the city of Nazareth, there lived a young virgin named Mary. This woman was engaged to a young man named Joseph. Now, our understanding of engagement today is similar but different 
to what engagement was like in Jewish culture in the first century. Sometimes they didn't refer to it as being engaged. Sometimes they called it being betrothed. In fact, that's what they, they mention here in verse 18. Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Now, what was a Jewish betrothal? Well, it was similar to an engagement. It was a, a promise of marriage, but it actually in their culture went even further than that. When someone was betrothed to somebody else, they were legally married. And so when someone's engaged today, if, if they decide, hey, this just isn't working out, we're going to split up. Well, there's no problem. They just go their separate ways. But in that culture, you couldn't just go your separate ways because you were married. In the eyes of the law, you had to get a divorce. You had to get a certificate of divorce. Even though you had never consummated the marriage with sexual relations, you never lived as man and wife, even so, you still had to get a divorce. So Mary and Joseph were in this relationship, this betrothal arrangement, and sometimes it might be a year or even more of, of during the time where they were betrothed, but they were not actually living together as man and wife. Notice it even says that Joseph was her husband. I'm trying to quickly scan to find the verse. Is it 19? Yes. Yeah, Joseph, her husband, it says. But wait a minute. They, they, they're engaged, but they're not actually living as man and wife. But Joseph is still called her husband even before the consummation of the union. So that's just what I wanted you to see here. Now, try to put yourself in Mary's sandals. She's a young, devout Jewish girl. She's legally married, though she's still a virgin. And in Luke chapter 1, we have the record of the angel Gabriel coming to her, appearing to her, and telling her that she was favored by God because the Lord had determined that she would bear a son. And this son would be the son of the Most High, who would reign over the throne of his father David and over the house of Jacob forever. So Mary received the news. She was going to bear the Christ child, the Messiah, the deliverer that God had promised. So as soon as Mary hears this news, she decides, well, I forgot to tell you one little important point. The angel also said that your relative Elizabeth has also conceived and she's in her sixth month of pregnancy. And that would have been news to Mary. She probably did not know this little tidbit of information. So she decides as soon as the angel leaves, I've got to go visit Elizabeth. So she travels um, on a journey to where her, her relative Elizabeth lived. And she stayed with her three months until Elizabeth gave birth. And then she came back home. Well, when she does come back home, um, Mary has been pregnant for at least four months, right? Three months staying with Elizabeth, and it's a long journey there and back. So I would assume at least four months she's pregnant. And perhaps she's showing uh, because Joseph figures out that she's pregnant. That's, that comes out in our text, doesn't he? It says, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. So at some point, he, he was able to see her and notice there's a baby growing in her womb, and it's not from me. Who did this? Maybe she had a boyfriend when she went to visit her, her relative Elizabeth on that trip. I, I don't know who it was, but she looks to me like she's been fooling around. She's been unfaithful to me. Now, it says that he was a righteous man, and he was also a gracious man. He didn't want to, to disgrace Mary publicly, 
And this would be a disgrace not only to her, but to her parents, her whole family. And so rather than to put her through that shame and that embarrassment in the Jewish community, he said, let's just do this privately. I'm going to divorce her, but we'll make sure that nobody else knows. It'll just be a private affair. But when he was considering on doing that, an angel appeared to him. And we're not told the name of the angel, but my guess is it's probably the same one that appeared to Mary. Because Gabriel seems to be the, the angel that was assigned with the job of arranging the details of the birth of the Messiah. So this angel comes to Joseph and he says, wait a minute, don't put her away privately because the child that is conceived inside her womb is of the Holy Spirit. And she's going to bear a son and you're going to call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So we come to our text in verse 21, she will bear a son. And we're going to tackle our, our text really simply today. We're going to stay almost entirely in verse 21. And we're going to, there's one other word we're going to look at in verse 23. But seven words. So this sermon is made up of seven words, which answer three questions. The first question is, who was this son? The angel told her, you will bear a son. Who was this son? Second question, what would this son come to do? Third question, who would this son do it for? And those seven words answer those questions. The seven words are these. Who was this son? Jesus. Emmanuel. What did the son come to do? Save from sins. Who did the son do it for? His people. So we have seven words there. Jesus, Emmanuel, save from sins, his people. So let's dive into those seven words. First of all, who was the son? Our text says, you shall call his name Jesus. Now, in Jew Jewish culture was different from our culture today, too, when you would name a baby. Because we name a baby, we give a, a baby a name on whatever we like. I like Caitlin. I like Jacqueline. I like Bob. I like Sam. So we'll just name them that. But in Jewish culture, the names had meaning. They meant something. And Jesus' name meant something. It meant, well, the name Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. Or to shorten it, Jehovah saves. Or to hyphenate it, Jehovah Savior. But it's about Jehovah saving. That's why they said you should call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So it had meaning. So really, the angel said to Joseph, you shall call his name Jehovah is salvation. We'll shorten that down to Jesus. So the very first thing we learn about Jesus from this passage is that Jesus is Jehovah who brings salvation. Who is Jehovah? Jehovah is God, God Almighty. He is Lord and God. Do you know, Christianity is the only religion on the face of the planet that understands who Jesus really is. You look at the cults, they all deny that Jesus is God in the flesh. You look at the Muslims, they say, well, he was a prophet, but he's not the son of God. You look at all the religions. He, he was an enlightened one. He was a great rabbi. He was so-and-so. The Bible describes him as much more than that describes him as the same one who created this universe, who flung the galaxies, the how many, 100 billion of them, I, the scientists say, 
not not stars, galaxies. And galaxies are made up of 100 billion stars on an average. So he flung out with, with his word. He created that. And here comes Jehovah to visit his creation. On planet Earth, a speck, tiny, tiny speck in this colossal universe where there are some sinners that need to be saved. Jehovah visits them to bring redemption. Notice also in verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. I, I love that word, Emmanuel. It's just so precious. Jesus can also be called Emmanuel because God has come to be with us. So, folks, when you think about Jesus, don't merely think about him as the Son of Man, which he was. A human being that walked the earth for 33 years, but he's far more than that. He is the divine one, the son of the everlasting God, the one who has no beginning and will have no end. God of very God. That's who Jesus Christ is. And the wonder of Christmas is that our creator, God himself, condescended to visit his rebellious creatures, not for the purpose of pouring out wrath, which they deserved, but of pouring out mercy for the undeserving. So there's a mighty stoop to come down from the palaces of glory where he is worshiped by all of the innumerable angels and the spirits of just men made perfect. There's a mighty stoop from coming to that point, stepping off his throne, descending lower and lower and lower until he is born as a helpless baby like all other babies are born. Well, first he's in somebody's womb for nine months. God is in the womb of a, of a human being. And then he's born as this crying, helpless, you know, that the away in a manger says, no crying he made. I don't believe that. I believe he was a regular human being. Like he cried. <laughs> That's what babies do. They cry to let you know they're hungry or whatever. So here, here's the son of God born as a real human being, but never, his deity had never left him. What he did is he, he, he possessed this divine nature from eternity, but he, he simply assumed a human nature and added that to his divine nature. So he becomes in one person, the God man. And that's exactly what we needed. Pure God could not pay the penalty for sinners because man is the one who sinned. And so God said, okay, if man sinned legally, another man has got to come to pay the penalty for these men that have sinned. So I will assume a human nature, come into their world, live the kind of life that I demanded that they live, but they did not. A perfect righteous life, and then lay my life down, bearing God's wrath against sin in order to pay the penalty and atone for their sins that they might be everlastingly saved. So, let this text settle forever exactly who Jesus Christ is. He is not the spirit brother of Lucifer, as the Mormons teach. He is not Michael the archangel, as the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. He is not just a prophet, as the Muslims teach. He is not just a good religious teacher, or one of many enlightened men, or a man who lived up to his divine potential and became one with God, as all kinds of other people teach. He is God, a very God. Amen. He is our God. And we worship him. 
If he's not God, it would be blasphemous for us to worship Jesus. But it is not blasphemy because he is the living God. So the glory of Christmas is that in Christmas we remember that God has come down. God has visited his creatures. He has stooped in mercy. He has come on a rescue mission to rescue people like us that desperately needed it. I remember the first Christmas after I became a Christian, singing the old Christmas carols I had sang my whole life, and those words came alive, and I thought, wow, I didn't know those words were like that, because <laughs> they had no meaning to me before. I, I sang them out of habit, and now I'm starting to see dip, deep, rich biblical truth and theology in those old lyrics. For example, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Just think about that. Veiled in flesh, so he came in flesh, but there was the Godhead that was who he really was, but people couldn't see it. He was veiled in flesh. Uh, um, hail the incarnate deity. Now, do you understand that word incarnate? We have a word like it. Chili con carne, <laughs> you know? And it, now, okay, so Esmeralda, you know what that means, right? Because that's Spanish. Con means with, right? Incarnate flesh or meat? With, with meat or with flesh. So when it says that, when we say that Jesus was incarnated, it was God incarnate, we mean Jesus in the flesh. Jesus in human flesh. That's what incarnation is. Pleased is man with man to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark, the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. So, I just want to call you again, as we do every Christmas, to recognize who this is that was born into the world. The Lord of glory. And, and the only right response to the right recognition of that is worship. I can't think of, how else do you respond to God coming to redeem you except to worship him? Jesus is the, the one who fell on the grenade so that the rest of us would not be blasted to smithereens. He's the true hero of all heroes of all time. So, The Magi gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That was their way of honoring this child. We honor him by pouring out our love, our affection, our obedience, our strength, our minds, our time, our money, our gifts, our service. Everything that we are and everything that we have, we give at, to him at his disposal as an offering of worship to God who has visited us. So that's the answer to the first question. Who was this son that was born? He was Jesus, Emmanuel. Secondly, what would this son do? What does our text say? For it is he who will save his people from their sins. There's three words here. Save, sins, and from. So let's take them in that order. For it is he who will save. Now, I believe here we're given the key that unlocks the purpose of Christ coming into the world. Jesus' coming into the world was many-faceted because he, there are several purposes for which he came. One of those purposes was to teach men, which he did. Another was to heal men, 
a physical illness, which he did. Um, another one was to provide an example for all people, which he did. But there is an ultimate overarching purpose for why Jesus came into the world. And I think it's in our text today. Chapter 1, verse 21. Ultimately, the highest priority of Christ when he comes into the world is to save. To save his people from their sins. He didn't come primarily to teach us, although he did teach us. Thank God that he did, because we have four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, full of his teaching. We would be so much the poorer if we didn't have the teaching of Jesus. And he didn't come primarily to be our example, although he did. 1 Peter chapter 2 says that he set an example for us, teaching us how to love selflessly and to give and to love our neighbor and all of that. That's matchlessly true. But primarily he came to save. Now, notice the second word, sins. He came to save his people from their sins. So notice it was not Jesus' mission to save us from poverty. It was not Jesus' mission to save us from sickness or low self-esteem or a poor marriage or an unfulfilled life. If you turn on your local, it's not local, turn on your TV and go to the religious station and just listen to it for a while, you're going to hear that that's why Jesus came. He came to give you health, prosperity, to make you wealthy. He came to give you a better life, your best life now. He came for all of these things, but the Bible says he came to save his people from their sins. That's the, that's the kernel, that's the core truth of why Jesus came into the world. So let's talk about that. Sin, what is it? If he came to save us from it, what is sin? Well, it's the violation of the holy law of God. It's something that is offensive to God. It is any thought, word, or act which incurs God's justice and punishment. It is that which stores up the wrath of God for the day of judgment. It is that which will damn a man in hell, not just for a year or a hundred years or even a million years, but for all eternity. Now and forever. The sinner in hell, because of his sins, will never be released from hell because he will never fully pay his debt off. He continues to sin in hell because he still rages against God. He never repents. We know from the book of Revelation that even in the greatest times of trial on earth, men don't repent. They still rage at God. They still blaspheme the name of God. And in hell, I believe that's going to be the condition of the sinner because he still has an unregenerate heart. He still has a heart that's at enmity with God. So what can he do? He will continue to blaspheme and rage against God for all eternity, continuing to sin throughout eternity, continuing to have to pay for those sins. It's a horrible thought to think about, but it is true. So there's, there's where we have, uh, that's sin. Sin is that which incurs the displeasure and a offense and judgment of Almighty God. The word from, let's talk about that word. He shall save his people from, not in. It doesn't say he'll save his people in their sins. I think a lot of people would like it to say that because they would like salvation without ever having to become sanctified. 
They'd like to continue to live in their sins and still go to heaven, still be saved. But the Bible doesn't teach that. It says that this one will come and save his people from their sins. Not only from sin's penalty, thank God for that, which is everlasting damnation. He will save us from that. But even in this life, he saves us from the power of those sins by his spirit coming to work in us and enable us to overcome sin, to put sin to death, like Romans 8, 13 says. So this one that's coming is going to save not only from the penalty, but from the power of sin. One day, even from the very presence of sin forever, because we will never sin once we're glorified and the sin will be gone. Thank God for that. So if a person's happy to go on living in their sins, then I would have to question whether they've been saved because Jesus didn't come to save them in their sins, but to save them from them. To be saved means more than getting some fire insurance. It means that God changes you. God transforms you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Nothing could be more clear than that to me. I don't know how people can argue with this text of scripture. Paul was not ambiguous here. He wasn't vague. He was totally spot on and clear. And he says, such were some of you. You were homosexuals, adulterers, revilers, covetous, drunkards. You were all those things, but God did something. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So anyone who is still an adulterer, a fornicator, a homosexual, a drunkard, a covetous person, if, you, if your life is still characterized by that, the Bible says you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Which I understand, I mean, you won't be saved. You might make a profession of faith now, but if your profession is real, you won't live in those sins. You'll repent of them. You will, you'll struggle against them. You'll cry out to God for His help to overcome those sins. You will not be content to go on living in that old life of sin. The Spirit of God won't let you do that. So if God ever saves a man, he doesn't save him in his sins. He saves them from their sins. Praise God. Okay. Third question. Who would the son do this for? Our text says it was for his people. He shall save his people from their sins. First of all, the word people. Let's talk about that word. Jesus came to save people, members of the human race, not plants or animals. He didn't come to save the whales or the redwoods. He came to save human beings. Right? I mean, that sounds fine, but we just have to make that point. He saved his people. Not kitties, not puppies, people. Number two, neither did Jesus come to save angels. There's two types of angels, right? Fallen and unfallen. The unfallen angels don't need to be saved. Fallen angels can't be saved. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but you should thank God that you, weren't, that you are not a fallen angel because there is no plan of redemption for fallen angels. When they sin, they sealed their fate for eternity. 
The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16, For assuredly He, God, does not give help to angels, but He does give help to the descendant of Abraham. He gives help to sinners like us, but there is no plan of redemption for Satan or the people or the angels that followed him in his rebellion. Okay, the word his. We've looked at the word people. What about his? That word his changes things. It's not, it doesn't say he shall save all people from their sins. There are some that we would call universalists, and they believe that the atonement of Christ will save every human being who's ever lived. They might have to uh, pay a penalty for a time, but ultimately God will redeem all people and reconcile all people to himself in heaven for eternity. But this text says he will save his people, his. Who are his people? We know that in Matthew 25, when Jesus comes back, there's going to be two groups. He calls them the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. The sheep will hear, come you blessed of my father into the eternal kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And the goats are going to hear, depart from me you accursed ones into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It doesn't sound to me like universalism. It sounds like there are two different groups. One receives everlasting glory and the other everlasting damnation. And Jesus Christ is the judge who pronounces what happens to those two groups on that final day. In Matthew 7, we read that there are two different paths, a broad path and a narrow path, two different gates that lead to those paths, a wide gate and a narrow gate, and two different destinations. One is destruction and one is life. And Jesus says, few are those who find life, many are those who go down the path that leads to destruction. So what I conclude from that statement of Jesus Christ is that there are two different types of people, the saved and the lost. And apparently, if I'm understanding Jesus correctly in that text, the majority of people will be lost. Because few find life, many go down the road to destruction. Um, so, no, our text doesn't say Jesus will save all people. Neither does it say Jesus is going to save the Jewish people. Although he will save a remnant of Jewish people, those who believe in Christ. But just because a person is Jewish doesn't guarantee their salvation. Paul in Romans 9 verse 6 says, They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Meaning you can have a fleshly descent to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that you are the true Israel of God. That you've been circumcised of the heart by the work of the Spirit. That's what's required for salvation. And then furthermore, the text does not say that Jesus would save good people or righteous people or respectable people because there aren't any except for him. Now they might think they are. In fact, that's the problem. Most people think they are good people. And so they really don't see a need for Christ in their life. They can make it fine on their own, they think. We, when we're witnessing to someone like that, we should tell them, when they tell us, well, I'm a good person, well, I'm sorry then, because it's impossible for you to be saved. Jesus didn't come to, to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You have to be a sinner to be called to repentance. And so if, if you insist on being 
a good person, that you are a good person, then you can't be saved. You have to come to the point where you f see yourself as a sinner under the wrath of God and needing a Savior. Okay, so we've considered what the text doesn't say. Let's meditate on what it does say. It says that He will save His people from their sins. Uh, the one thing to notice is that these people are Christ's before He even comes into the world. Notice the text in Matthew 1. She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. So he will say, that's future, future tense. He's going to save his people from their sins. Now Jesus isn't even born yet. But the angel is pronouncing that he's going to save his people. Well, who are these people? Evidently they were his coming into the world. There, there was a group of people that Christ was coming into the world after to save. They're called His. The, these people don't become His people because they're saved. They're saved because they're His people. What I mean by that is John 10.26. In John 10.26, Jesus said, But you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. Now usually we turn that around and we say, um, The reason you're not Jesus' sheep is because you don't believe. But Jesus said, No, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. He turns the whole thing right around. In other words, there are sheep and there are goats. There are his people and there are those that are not his people. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. So who are these people? Well, they're Christ's. Jesus in John chapter 6 spoke again and again about these people that the Father gave to him to be his. And I just want to read those and see if we can fairly quickly summarize what is true about the ones that the Father gave to Jesus. John 6, 37. <clears throat> All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. John 6, 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. John 10, 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. John 17, 1 and 2. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And then John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that you may see my glory which you have given me for you love me before the foundation of the world. So let's just sum up those five texts. There are a people given by the Father to the Son. These people will come to Jesus. Jesus won't lose any of them. He'll raise them all up on the last day. No one's able to snatch them out of Jesus' hand. Jesus gives eternal life to them, and he prays that the Father would make sure that they are with him and see his glory. So that's just a quick synopsis of these ones the Father gave the Son. If you're a Christian, if you truly have repented and put your trust in Jesus Christ, you were given by the Father to Jesus. Jesus came into this world to save you, to save his people from their sins. He came to get them. In what sense were these people given to Jesus by the Father? 
I, I'm, I, let me, I'll just express to you what I, th th this is Brian's thoughts. Okay, just take it with a grain of thought. This is, I, I can't find this stated anywhere specifically in scripture so that I want you to think about this. I'm not asking you to accept it. But this is my thought on this. Um, God gave these people to Jesus in the same way a wealthy ranch owner gives sheep to a shepherd. How does he do that? In what sense does a, a landowner give sheep to a shepherd? Well, he entrusts those sheep to the shepherd to keep them safe from wolves or danger or harm. It's his job, his, his, his charge over those sheep is to save them and to keep them safe from predators, to watch over them. Well, Jesus came into the world, God having given him those sheep, and it's his job now, having charge of these sheep, he's responsible to bring them to glory. And that's why in Romans 8, 29 and 30, it says, A whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Jesus is bringing every one of his people to glory. He's not going to fail at any point. There's not going to be one of his sheep that the devil's able to snatch away and destroy. He's going to save them. And that's why he came into the world. And not only are they his special charge, they're his special bride as well. These people are called his bride. They're God's elect, chosen by him to be saved from the foundation of the world. Before the world was even created, God had a master plan of redemption to send his son to gather out those who the father would give him. And this bride brings Jesus Christ delight and pleasure forever as his people. So these people are given to Jesus by the Father to be saved by him at the cost of his life and then uh, to be enjoyed by him throughout eternity. So let's draw out some application from our text today. We've seen seven words. Jesus, Emmanuel, save from sins his people. What's the true meaning of Christmas all about? At the, the, the true meaning is that there's still hopes for the likes of you and me. If you still have breath in your body, there's still hope that you might be reconciled to God. And I realize that many of you in this room already are, but perhaps some are not. Meaning of Christmas is that there is hope that you can know God. You can be reconciled to God. Every one of your sins can be remitted, can be forgiven by God, be cast into the depths of the sea, never to be pulled back up again. You can have a blessed, favored relationship with the God of heaven that made you and created you. And that's why God sent Jesus, is for that very purpose, that you could know God. The ultimate purpose for us is not, oh, wow, I get to have forgiveness, or I get to have eternal life, the ultimate thing that we get is God. We've lost God in the fall, and we get God back. You can have God. There's nothing greater than that. There's no, Riches are not greater than that. Physical healing's not greater than that. A great marriage is not greater than that. That's the ultimate. There's nothing greater than that. And my friend, if you are without Christ this morning, you can have God. You can have Him. You can be restored to relationship with Him. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Yes. Revelation 22, the spirit and the bride say, come. 
Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. It's free. Isaiah 55, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy and wine, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. So I just want to ask every one of you, because I don't know the spiritual state of every person here. Do you know God? Are you reconciled to God? Come to Jesus Christ. Forsake your sin and cleave to Jesus as your only hope. Because he is. He is your only hope. You will perish for all eternity in hell if you do not come to him. I can't be more clear than that. And you need to know that's the gospel truth. This isn't Brian talking now. Earlier I said this is my thought. That's not my thought. I'm, I'm speaking to you from the very words of scripture. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides, means it remains on him. Don't be that person that the wrath of God abides on. Flee from your sin and flee to Jesus Christ as your only refuge and hope. And those of us that are saved, that we know him, that we're walking with him, my only encouragement I can give you is worship him, right? I mean, that's the only thing that flows out of this wonderful truth of scripture that God visited us to redeem us and save us. Let's be worshipers.